even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. We kind of exalt this great Savior today. No matter what you are going through, no matter what, what this week has done to you already, your Redeemer remains faithful and true. This past summer, I had the opportunity to perform my first wedding as a pastor. It was an incredible experience. The only other wedding I was that close to the action was my own. And I had kind of forgotten some of those things. When you're sitting in the audience, you just see the backs of their heads and you see the pastor talking. But I was right there in the holding tank area with the groom beforehand. And then we march out and the bride comes down the aisle and she was glowing from head to toe. The smile that she had on her face just seemed to fill the entire room. As she got closer and closer to her groom, there was this connection that I could just feel. And I looked over at the groom, and he is fixated on his bride, and the bride is fixated on the groom, as if there's no one else attending the wedding. <laughs> sure, there's family there, and sure, there's, a, there's other parts of the ceremony, but it's almost like they didn't care about anything else but focusing on one another. Then I mentioned that the bride was smiling. She couldn't stop smiling. The groom couldn't stop smiling. It was almost as if they were staring at one another and saying this, there, there's no one else in this room but you. There's no one else I desire besides you. There's no one on earth that I want to be with other than you. You are the only one for me. They seem so incredibly happy. It was in that overwhelming joy that they sealed their marriage with a covenant. This lifelong commitment in sickness and in health and for richer or for poorer until death do us part. And I was struck by this undistracted love that just seemed to fill the room. I remember talking with the groom in that holding tank area and he just is telling me, I can't believe I get her. I, I can't believe this is happening. And I, remind, I was reminded of my own wedding thinking, is this really, seriously, Shannon? You want me? You really do want to spend the rest of your life with me? Just having that sense of gratitude, that, just that, that emotion, that passion for that one and only person. But as it's been said before, that marriage ceremony, and even yours, and even those of you that are looking to get married, that ceremony only serves as a picture frame. The portrait is not the happy couple in a tuxedo and a dress. The portrait is Christ and His church. You see, there's another marriage that's going to happen. You realize that, don't you? It's a marriage that we're all going to be a part of whether you were single here on earth or married or your spouse passed away, if you're a believer, you're the bride of Christ. You see, that other marriage is going to happen because of what the groom did 2,000 years ago on a cross. The groom would pursue his bride. He would give 
His blood for her, even though she was not seeking to be married to Him. He would take all of her, her sorrows, take all of her sin, take all of her shame so that she would be set free from being eternally separated from her groom and her Creator. See, this picture is of the Gospel here. The good news that Jesus, our groom, died in our place. We didn't just die in our place. He is taking us as His own. Jesus is coming after you today, this morning. Jesus wants you. Do you get that? Jesus desires to have you, not as some adopted member of the family that nobody wants to talk about, but as His bride, the one He is fixated on, the one He died for. And one day, according to Revelation 19, we're going to celebrate with a feast, a marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going, to, we're going to spend that time celebrating with Him because of all the things that He has done. Revelation 19 says we're going to sing to Him. You just sang to one another this morning. Can you imagine singing to the Lord in His presence? And then He'll wipe away every tear from every eye and make all things new. Truly, as we've been talking about today, the Lord is going to provide. The Lord needs to be our vision. The Lord, our Redeemer, is faithful and true. What He said, He is going to do. But in light of this great love that is put on display for us by our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His unbelievably perfect track record, His undying devotion to us, why? Would we trade this incredible relationship that will last for eternity for a few fleeting moments of the pleasures of sin? To that married couple that I had the chance to, to witness and to perform their wedding, they were completely fixated on one another. They weren't, there was no one else in the room. Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus when temptation comes? You're all that you, he is all that you need. He is all that you think about. But so many of us in this room, we struggle with this, don't we? Even though our groom has been faithful and true and our groom has done everything that is possible, that is needed, we choose to love something else. We choose to love someone else. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? Why do we do this? Why do we give in to these temptations when the One who saved us and redeemed us, who's given us everything we need, who's made our lives, our spiritual lives possible, who's preparing a home for us in heaven, I mean, there's been nothing. He's not dropped one thing. There's been nothing left undone. And yet, in that moment of temptation, when sin presents itself, we choose sin. Why do we do that? Why do we choose our sin over God? Here's a simple answer. Spoiler alert for the sermon. Because we don't believe that God is better. We don't believe He's better. We're not standing there like that married couple going, there's no one better for me. I'm choosing you. I just want you. 
I don't care about all the other people in magazines. I don't care about how beautiful the people in Hollywood are. I don't care about all the other people that I, you know, that I went to school with in high school and college. I, I don't care about all of those girls or all of those guys. I'm not missing out. I just want you. Why do we trade the King, the Savior, our Redeemer, for sin? Because you and I don't always believe that God's plans and His promises are better than the pleasures of sin. In that mode of temptation, you are not believing, like the psalmist in Psalm 73, who do I have in heaven but you? There is none on earth or heaven that I desire besides you. You are my portion forever. You are what I need. Not this sin. But instead, we choose our sin over God. That's the title of the message this morning. When we choose our sin over God. What happens? Well, we see the scene of the children of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there. You see this scene, and it's not the scene that I described for you in the beginning. It's not a marriage ceremony. It's not a groom talking to his bride at the altar, pledging his love for her. This scene is a scene like many marriages. This marriage has ended in the courtroom. This is... This is a divorce that is about to happen. The two parties have not gathered to pledge their vows and their love to one another. Unfortunately, the bride in this passage wants a divorce. But the groom is determined to not let that happen. And he will bring his bride back. He's not shown up at the courtroom to sign his name to the document for the divorce. He's there to take his bride back. We see Jeremiah here, and you know, as he was the prophet of God, that God used really to preach an unpopular message. He was known as the weeping prophet because he had tears in his voice, tears streaming down his face as he would preach repentance to his own people knowing that if they did not repent, judgment was coming. They thought they had the good life. They thought everything was going great. Don't tell us about people that are coming to get us. We don't don't care about the Babylonians. We don't care about God's judgment. We have what we need. And instead, their lives were empty. Their lives were on a collision course with God and His judgment. Israel had lost her way completely. If you do a historical study of this, it is absolutely unrecognizable to you. If you lived there during that time, you would not be able to tell that Yahweh was the God of Israel. Can you imagine for a second if if you came into this church service and we talked nothing about God, there was no Bible, there was no mention of God's truth, But instead, we brought in a bunch of idols and set them up here 
on stage and we began praising these particular stone images as if they were the ones who gave us life. They were the ones who gave us children. They were the ones who gave us our crops and our groceries. We, those were the gods that we were going to serve. Picture that and you have a little bit of a glimpse of what it was like to live in Israel. There was no, there was no book of the law. It was lost. Josiah had to, and Hilkiah the priest, who was Jeremiah's father, found it <laughs> later on. The place of idolatry. It was a culture that hated God. The Word of God had been, had been, was just a memory. It was, just, was lost. This was a difficult time for God to step in and call these idolaters to worship Him. But again, this groom is not going to let his, his bride go. Jesus is also saying that to His church. He's never going to let us go. He will never say, die. He will never say, just let them go. He will always be on the pursuit. Let's look into the text together. You've already heard it been read in Jeremiah 2, verses 1 and following. We see here the first point. We choose our sin over God. God exposes the idol worship of the heart here. As we start off in Jeremiah 2, you start to see God is speaking. And sometimes we think of God who is this, you know, this, this Lord and Master who's kind of disconnected from His people. No, He is he's pleading with His people. He is intimately involved with His people. He loves His people. It just amazes me how, how God speaks to His people. He, he takes them back to the past. It's almost like he's saying this in the first few verses. He's saying, I remember when you were young. I remember when I first chose you to be mine. When we first got married. You were devoted to me. You, you followed me wherever I went. You did what I said. I took you to a land that no one had inhabited. A land that had not been sown. You followed me in the wilderness. I protected you. You were the first fruit of my harvest. I love you. I still love you. Anyone who tried to devour you, anyone who tried to, as it says in verse 2, anyone who, in verse 3, anyone who tried to eat of you became guilty or faced judgment. Evil came upon them. I made sure you were taken care of. And you used to be in love with me too. God begins pleading with His people in verse 4 and He says, what injustice, what did you find in me that caused you to run and abandon me? Why did you leave me for someone else? Why did you abandon me for idols? See, in this case, the adultery here is spiritual. It's God's people have been having affairs with worthless idols. Look down in verse, in verse 4. It says, What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after, and some of your texts might say, idolatry and became idolaters. That word idolatry, believe it or not, guess what it means in its purest form? It means vanity or emptiness. Isn't that interesting? The word idol means empty. 
Isn't that exactly what an idol is? You could read it this way. They walked after emptiness and became empty. Psalm 115 talks about this. Psalm 115.8 says, Those who make idols will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them will become like them. What we worship is what we become. And that is seen here in this passage. They're grasping at thin air. It's the same word they use in Ecclesiastes where Solomon is saying, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's emptiness. You're getting nothing out of this. You can kind of see why God is contending for His people here. You, You gave up me for that? You gave up fullness for emptiness? What did I do? What was it that I did wrong that caused you to leave? The marriage between God and His people is dying of neglect. God's people no longer seek after Him. They no longer say in verse 6, where is the Lord? That's not a statement of we can't find Him. Okay? It actually is talking about a focus, a, an intentionality pursuit on who God is. And look at who's saying this. The fathers, the leaders of the community, leaders of their homes, the, as you keep going, the the priests in verse 8 did not say, where is the Lord? The, those who handle the law don't even know who I am anymore. Those who transgressed against me are the rulers, the kings. The prophets who are supposed to be there to call the people back, they're, they're working for Baal. And they walked after things that gave them no profit whatsoever. You kind of see this 360 degrees. Everywhere you turn, there's idolatry in this culture. And God has had enough. He's saying, don't you remember what it was like when you used to love me? When, I was, when we walked through the wilderness together? Do you remember what that was like? They'd forgotten the mighty acts of salvation that their God had done. They'd forgotten the love that saved them. They they were suffering from self-induced spiritual amnesia. God is exposing this idol worship that's in their hearts. Literally, the term for idols, like I said, is emptiness, or it can even be viewed as worthlessness. God begins taking His people back to the past, sharing all the things He did for them, not as a history lesson, not as a guilt trip, but to show them what they left and what they got in return. It's really hard to believe that this would happen. This partner swapping, this this Israel bartering their way from the living God. God even brings up the point that in this passage, that even the pagans don't do this. (laughs) Look at what he says here. He says, I will contend with you, verse 9, he says, and with your sons, and your sons' sons, I will contend, I will ask them this question, look from the coastlands, 
from, from this point to this point, observe closely and see if there's any other nation that does what you're doing. Has any nation changed their gods when they were not gods? But my people, verse 11, have changed their glory for that which doesn't profit. The pagans never abandoned their gods, but God's people abandoned Him. And it's almost like the jury in this courtroom are the heavens, the angels. And they're, and, and they're, and they're there and they are shuddering with horror that this would happen. Don't you get it, Israel? What are you doing? Why would you leave your God to serve these idols? And you're getting nothing in return. Nothing but emptiness. These verses are a passionate plea from God. He, you can kind of see His jealousy. His, his holy jealousy for His people. Because He knows that they will not be satisfied. They will always be restless until they are with Him. God will not share His glory with another. He will not share His bride with another. He loves her too much. He knows that nothing short of His love will come close to satisfying her heart. Now as hard as I have been on Israel here, let's take a step back here and look at our lives. How many of you, don't raise your hand, it's a rhetorical question, but how many of you are reading this passage with me and going, that is my life? Pastor Stephen, this is where I'm at right now. I'm trading the glory of all that who God is, all that He's done for my Savior, my Lord, my Master, to go serve something that's going to destroy me, that's going to be my death, that's going to bring emptiness not fullness. And yet I keep doing it over and over. You know, in the New Testament, we see this clearly. And one of the passages where you see it most vividly is Revelation 2, where the groom shows up again. The groom shows up at Ephesus. And he's talking to all the churches. And Ephesus is the first one. And what does he say? I know what you've been doing. I know that you haven't been able to tolerate false teaching. Great job. You've endured You've stood by doctrine. But I have this against you. What is that one thing he had against them? That they what? Abandoned or left their first love. You're telling me a church can be involved in serving, preaching, getting the text right, and have completely lost the whole meaning of it? That it's all about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving others as yourself? Yes, it can happen. It happened at Ephesus. It can happen here. You've, you've left your first love. And isn't it interesting? What does Jesus tell them they need to do? What's the first thing? What's that? Yes, repent. But also, remember. Remember. Do you remember what it was like? when you first realized that God loved you and sent His Son to die for you? Remember when you were first joined together with Christ in salvation? You remember that? You need to go back and remember those things. And how Jesus has never abandoned you. He's never left you. 
He's always pursued you. And go back and do those first things. Why do we leave our first love? What is the cause? Same reason for what reason why Israel did. We believe the promises of sin will be better than the promises of God. And that leads us into our next point. Because God is going to reveal the emptiness of sin's promises. He is, he's going to do this in, a, in, a, in such a vivid way that it's going to, I hope, transform your life today. Because if you can understand, and I can understand with the Holy Spirit's help today, have our eyes and our understanding opened, and be able to see sin for what it really is, it is going to revolutionize your battle with temptation. Sometimes we think of God as being a little bit better than, the, than sin. But that's not what we see here. God is not just a little bit better. He is... He's everything. There's no comparison whatsoever. The people here in Jeremiah 2, verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to dig or hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, which can hold no Water. They committed two evils. They, they chose their sin and they chose to forsake the Lord. See, in the end, they tried to find their satisfaction outside of God's love. They tried to fix their problem of emptiness by running to empty and worthless idols. They tried to fix what was broken in their hearts with more broken and shattered parts. Does that make any sense to you? That what, what, how, how would that ever work? There are times where I will order something on Amazon.com and it will come in the mail. And I'm all excited about it. It might be a shelf or maybe something I have to put together with you know, 21 instructions. Those are a lot of fun, aren't they? And you sit down and you start putting it together and you realize the holes really weren't drilled right. And the screws they gave you were too big. And there's this crack on the side of one of the shelves. Do you just live with it and say, who cares? I'm putting this up. Well, not if it's for you. You're not going to do that, right? You're going to send it back and say, don't send me broken parts. Send me what I need to make the shelf or make the desk or make whatever it is. See, broken and shattered pieces don't fix broken and shattered things. Emptiness does not fill up emptiness. Only fullness can do that. And see, the Israelites had tried every broken and shattered thing imaginable. I will not go into detail here, but you can read throughout Jeremiah and you can see the treacherous things that they did the unimaginable things they did to their children, things that we see in our culture even today, all for idol worship. They tried to fix what was broken in their hearts with something that was broken to begin with. They made the worst trade in history. They traded the fountain of living waters 
for broken cisterns that cannot hold water. A cistern was a place that was kind of like a well, if you can picture that. If you didn't have a well, then you had a cistern. You would dig a huge hole several feet beneath your house so the rainwater throughout the rainy season in the wintertime could be directed and collected during that time and be stored for the dry months that were ahead. And you would have to lower a vessel or some kind of bucket or something down deep in there to retrieve the water. These cisterns, you would have to make sure that you put limestone across it so that no water could escape. So that when you put the water in there, and you're using stone and brick to to make it, that it actually would hold the water and not go out the sides. Listen to what's going on here in verse 13. They're hewing for themselves, these cisterns. These are being built by people, not by God. They are fashioning this idol, this, this thing they're worshiping, and they're going to serve this thing, but it's going to be broken. Instead, they should be worshiping the one who fashioned them and created them. On the flip side, you see this fountain of living water. The idea here is a never-ending supply of water that refreshes the parched lips of a weary traveler who desperately needs a drink. The fountain of water, this this never-ending supply. That's, That's the contrast before you. When Israel was being tempted by these idols, they needed to step back and see what they were really giving into. And you and I, when we have temptation, it's going to happen, maybe even this afternoon for you, maybe even tomorrow. Something confronting you. Sin enticing you to believe one more time that maybe this time it will work. Maybe this time the pleasure of sin will be enough. See, the pleasure of sin promises something that can never be delivered. You can't find more from sin. You can only find less. So in reality, when you choose the pleasure of sin, you've just settled for less, not more. You understand? You've chosen something that will lead to spiritual ruin. According to James 1, when it is finished, sin gives birth to something. Death. Maybe not right away, but in the end it does. When we choose our sin, we've chosen to fight for and cling to the thing that will destroy us. And Satan wants to do this. He wants to trick us into squeezing the size of our life into the size of our personal dreams, our desires, our wants, what we think we need in that moment. Satan wants you to exchange the God-centered life for a me-centered life, saying ultimate satisfaction only comes when you live for yourself. See, sin is not a cosmetic issue. It's not just something that can just be washed away with a bar of soap. Jeremiah actually talks about that in this chapter. You've tried to wash yourself. You've tried to clean yourself, but the stain of sin is still there. And you may ask, what can wash away my sin? And we know the answer. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus, according to 1 John 1.7, can purify us from all sin. You need to go back to your room. 
go back to the one who, who gave his life for you. We need to hold those consequences of sin firmly in our mind when we are up against temptation. Asking ourselves, is it really worth a lifetime of damage that this moment of pleasure is going to cost me? Is it really worth it? And instead, enjoying the superior satisfaction that God brings. Asking God for strength in those moments to remember the love He has for us. And this love is the last point. God displays the fullness of His satisfying love. I want to show you briefly here what a cistern actually looks like. This, what a place we would actually go to in Israel would look like where they would have the, the water there. You'd have to lower the bucket deep into there and there would be times where the water would not be able to stay in there because the walls had been broken down. And then when you go to get the water, there's nothing there. But this is what, this is what Christ promises. This never-ending supply. This fountain of living waters. The fullness of His satisfying love. This marriage seemed to be beyond recovery, but it wasn't. Because just half a chapter later, Jeremiah writes this in chapter 3. God is speaking and He says, Return, faithless people, declares the Lord. Come back to Me. And this is what He says, For I am still your husband. This is breathtaking that God would do this. He's not done with His people. He's not done with you. It's God's grace calling for the ungracious. His faithfulness calling out to the unfaithful. Even when God's love goes unrequited, He doesn't cease to continue pursuing you with His love. Even though the marriage has been violated over and over again, He never breaks His covenant. I found it interesting when I read this this past week. When I was studying the fountain of living waters... The fountain of living waters. You know, this isn't the first or the only reference to Christ or God being this living water. God has always declared Himself to be the fountain of living waters. He is I Am. And in Exodus 17, He actually tells His people to strike the rock at at Horeb so that water will come out of it and the people would drink. And we learn from 1 Corinthians 10 that they drank that spiritual drink and all were drinking from this spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Even in Exodus 17, He's the fountain of living waters. In Deuteronomy 8-7, it says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs of water flowing forth in the valleys and the hills. Once again, reminding them, this is what I can do for you. This is who I am. Psalm 36, 7-9 through 9 says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink in the fountain or the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light 
we see light. God's always been the fountain of living waters for His people. Psalm 63.3 says, Because your loving kindness is better than my life, I will praise you. There was a case study that um, I did when I was preparing for this, and it really helped in the New Testament to try to bring this together. This satisfying love. What does it look like when Christ pursues you and brings you back? I want you to turn to John 4. Because Jesus met someone who was also standing next to a cistern or a well. And he was not done with her. He pursued her. Verse 10 says, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, this woman at the well, says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where then are you going to get this living water? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst. And the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I don't have to go into great detail, but you do know this woman at the well had tried the pleasures of sin. She had dug for herself, for herself, cisterns, many of them, and none of them held water. She was trying to dig a hole big enough and fill it up with water so that she could find that satisfaction. And yet, she was still thirsty. Christ was offering her living water Water that would spring up to eternal life with joy and satisfaction. This is not water for her body. This is water for her soul. It's her soul that's thirsty. I mean, no woman goes through relationships with six men who is either starting desperately thirsty or ending desperately thirsty. She had five husbands and the one she was living with now was not even her husband. Six relationships Five marriages. This woman is thirsty. Either she can't find what she's craving or the men that she's been with have discarded her. She's locked in darkness. There's no way out. And Jesus moves into that darkness. And He says, you don't have to be thirsty anymore. You don't have to go to another husband. You don't have to look for another relationship. You don't have to look for another thing. All you need is me. Here we're learning about Jesus. We're learning about ourselves. He's compassionate and relentless in His love. He knows your past. He knew the woman at the well's past. She was amazed by this. But so should we. He knows all about us. There's nothing that's hidden from Him. He knows you completely. And yet He loves you. You may find yourself here never being able to settle with being deeply contented in who Christ is and what He can do for you. 
But He's sufficient. He is the living water. He is your Savior. He is your Messiah. He is what Psalm 1611 says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. When you choose sin over God, you choose emptiness over fullness. You choose worthless idols over the almighty, all-sufficient God. You choose hunger and thirst over complete satisfaction. And this is probably the worst of them all. You choose death over life. Hold those consequences firmly in your mind this week. Renew your mind on these, on these truths. Don't forsake the living water, the fountain that gives you everything you need for emptiness. You can try to fill up the void by moving on from one thing to the next or one person to the next. But as St. Augustine says, so, so well, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Jesus is after you this morning. He has his eyes fixated on you. You are his bride. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. He intends to break through and give you life and light into the core of your being. He's he's seeking now to awaken you by His Word so you will see your desperate need of Him. Don't settle for addictive substitutes that keep you from drinking at the fountain of life. Revelation 22.17 Last chapter of the Bible. What does, he say? what does the groom say? Let the one who is what? Thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. Return to me. I can be the fountain of living waters. You don't need to go anywhere else. You don't need to keep searching. All you need is in Jesus. Don't, st- don't spend this week hewing out cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water this week. Go to the Word. Go to your Lord and Savior who is that fountain of living waters. Let- let's pray together. Lord, your Word cuts deep, but it also heals and enables. It is the, the sword that pierces between joint and marrow, but it is also the sword which we fight against sin. It is the sword that we strike death blows to our flesh. Lord, I thank you that you have given us everything that we could possibly need. You know us inside and out. You You fashioned us. You gave your life for us. There is no injustice that we find in you. There's nothing that you have done that is wrong. But yet, Lord, so many of us this morning, myself included, we, when we're tempted to to sin, we, we don't really size up what's happening. We don't see it for what it really is an abandonment of the only one who can satisfy us for something that will never satisfy us. 
Lord, help us to see you for who you really are and live our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.